Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Vic Reynolds, head of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, talks about his agency's progress in reducing a backlog of criminal cases and shares his additional priorities for the GBI this year. And that includes employee retention. Also, a new podcast examines the growing threat of white extremism in the U.S. and abroad. We'll speak with Mark Greenblatt, a reporter for the show, and Heidi Byrick, a local expert on the topic. All those conversations coming up. But first, this Spelman College here in Atlanta canceled classes and closed its campus to all visitors today after receiving another bomb threat. It's the third against the historically black institution since the start of the year. In an email statement, Spelman President Mary Schmidt Campbell said, quote, the school's Department of Public Safety received the threat about 10 a.m. this morning and immediately notified the Atlanta Police Department and the mayor's office. The FBI is investigating a series of bomb threats in recent weeks made to more than a dozen HBCUs throughout the nation. And then this from the Atlanta Public Schools in a statement to Closer Look. Quote, out of an abundance of caution, Maynard Jackson High School was operating under a soft lockdown, which is limited movement through the, throughout the building, lunch and classrooms, after a threat of violence against the school was made anonymously earlier today. The Atlanta Public Schools Police Department has provided a added security personnel at the school, as well as canine units to conduct searches and secure the building. Now, APSPD investigators have been on site collecting and reviewing any evidence as it relates to the origin and validity of these threats. And, of course, we'll ask Vic Reynolds about all this, too. In other news, the head of Georgia's highest court says the state's judicial system is still coping with challenges caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. David Namias is Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Georgia. He delivered his annual update on the state of the judiciary to state lawmakers this morning. Dealing with the pandemic's consequences is consuming the attention of Georgia's judges at all levels, and it will for the foreseeable future. Namias went on to say Georgia's courts are still working through a backlog of cases from the last two years while also trying to handle new cases. And they're also still learning how to operate safely as the pandemic ebbs and flows. But lessons have been learned, according to Chief Justice Namias. He cited the value of conducting court proceedings virtually over the Internet. Many of these virtual proceedings can and should be part of the judicial system's new normal when COVID becomes just a memory. And looking forward, I also have the hope that the technological lessons that we've been learning can help with longstanding concerns about access to justice by poor and lower income Georgians who need legal help with issues affecting their families, health, homes and jobs. Namia says he hopes the state's courts will emerge from the pandemic better than they were before. 
Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says he's committed to getting the city on track to meet its climate change goal to only use renewable energy by 2035. Molly Samuel has more from a mayoral town hall held Monday. The mayor says he supported Atlanta's green energy ambitions as a councilman and continues to now. This plan could help to create new jobs, reduce energy costs. Um, help drive creation of more affordable housing. Dickens says he wants to expand solar power in the city, make office buildings more efficient, and expand electric vehicles, public transit, and walking and biking options. The mayor said he plans to work with Georgia Power to reduce people's energy costs, and he also plans to address high utility bills with a program to help seniors and others get efficiency upgrades on their homes. I'm an engineer. I get the science of it. I'm a community member. I get the community impacts of it. I'm a 34-day-old mayor, so I get the uh, necessity of it and the uh, challenges of it. Dickens didn't commit to how he would staff the city's Office of Resilience, which used to have many more people working in it. He said he's more concerned about the outcomes than titles people hold. He also didn't comment on the new police training center being built at the old Atlanta prison farm, a project that activists say runs counter to the city's environmental ambitions. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And finally, the Atlanta Board of Education is stepping up its opposition to a proposed city of Buckhead. In a resolution passed unanimously Monday, the board called on lawmakers to reject legislative attempts to carve Buckhead into its own city. The resolution states that Georgia law does not allow for the creation of new school districts, causing uncertainty for students in a new Buckhead city. Now, the Buckhead City Committee responded with a statement criticizing APS. The committee said APS should focus on improving its test scores rather than inserting itself into legislative business. WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You may recall last summer I spoke with the Georgia Bureau Investigative Investigation Director Vic Reynolds. We talked about the agency's gang task force. The, the gang task force initially was set up with what we call a SAC, a special agent in charge who runs that particular standalone unit. He has two ASACs, assistant special agents in charge. There are 10 agents with the GBI, what we call special agents, assigned to that task force. We have individuals from Atlanta Police Department. Mm-hmm. They were an original partner with us. We have individuals from the Georgia National Guard Intelligence, an analyst who works with us uh, as well. And then we have two GBI intelligence analysts who are assigned to that task force too. 
At the time, Reynolds told me that the task force had launched 843 investigations since 2019. He also talked about the importance of law enforcement and government officials working together to combat all crime. And combating gangs is just one of many ongoing priorities and duties for the GBI. The agency also assists in other criminal investigations, police-involved shootings, as well as forensic laboratory services. Well, join me now with more is GBI Director Vic Reynolds about those efforts and also talk about top priorities for 2022. Director Reynolds, glad to have you back. Thank you, Rose. Thank, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you again. Thank you. You know, unfortunately, before we get into that conversation about all that I mentioned, Director Reynolds, unfortunately, we have to begin with this, and that is, again, bomb threats. Uh, you might have heard coming into the program, Spelman College received yet another bomb threat today. And as you know, several of the nation's uh, historically black college and universities. Uh, just your thoughts on all this. Well, you know, it's a shame um, that, that you can't <clears throat> go to your school of, of choice and and uh, learn and, and do it in a manner where you're not concerned about um, foolishness like this going on. I know my friends at the FBI, who I've had no, numerous discussions with, are very involved in these investigations since it crosses state lines mm -hmm. and and it's happened to several schools around the country. We are also available in providing intelligence as needed through our um, through our intelligence sharing and analysis center here at the GBI and working with the locals any way that we can. But you know, Rose, it's it's just a it's a it's it's a crying shame that you know we live live, live in a time where where young folks can't can't be at school enjoying it, learning, being educated without such foolishness going on. Hopefully we'll, 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 we'll find who, who's doing this, arrest them, charge mm -hmm. them, indict them, and eventually punish them for what they do. I'm, I'm confident the system will eventually be able to do that. And you and I and a lot of folks know the history and optics tied to bombings in this nation, whether it's a sick joke or not. This is triggering and concerning. Uh, it certainly is. You know, when you you know, we, we don't live in a vacuum. So, you know, when we look at uh, history of, of what's happened before, particularly to minority churches and, 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 and institutions of that nature, then it's, it's concerning. And, uh, and you know, but, but, but again, in, in my discussions with my friends and colleagues and federal partners at the FBI, I'm confident they're going to work with locals do whatever they need to do to find the perpetrators of this event. As the director of the GBI, we're committed to assist in any way we can, and and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to find uh, these folks sooner rather than later. Uh, perhaps you can't reveal too much, but in a situation like this, you even in the past, where do you begin? I mean, if folks are using an untraceable phone or if it's an email, uh, the challenges involved in trying to, to locate an individual or the individuals responsible for this, or has technology allowed you all to make some serious uh, gains in this? Well, you know, without, without sharing too much, I mean, sure. we, we, we work with um, our federal partners very closely. Uh, you know, you know, we're so, so proud of our, what we call GSAC, our Georgia intelligence sharing and analysis center, which is our intelligence arm of the GBI. They were just named this past year as the top, fusion intelligence gathering center in the country here in Georgia. So it's something we're very, very proud of. And the information they can gather and supply along with, with our uh, colleagues on a federal level is pretty amazing. And, and, and the locals do it as well, particularly mm -hmm. larger departments like APD and 
folks of that nature. Uh, and, and, and we're learning uh, over the years that this intelligence gathering and sharing is the backbone of a lot of these investigations, particularly ones that cross not only county, but state lines as well. And, you know, I, I will tell you that these type of investigations, these agents are, are, mm-hmm. are proverbial bloodhounds. They're not going to leave it alone until they find whomever is responsible for this. And, and again, with, without being terribly redundant, I, I'm, I'm confident that whomever is doing this will be found. Think back to when you first started in law enforcement and the resources you all had then and then now. And technology has played a big role in that. Um, so I imagine that based on what you just said, then technology will play a big role in hopefully leading to the, those responsible for these threats. It, it will. You know, Rose, I was telling, I was speaking the other day, I was telling somebody years and years and years ago when I was a young police officer, I remember when we would respond to a scene, the, the first thing we would do is you would canvas a neighborhood. You would knock on a door. Did you see anything? Did you hear anything? And that still goes on uh, today. But but the first thing you do now is you begin gathering uh, uh, devices like phones, mm-hmm. uh, laptops, iPads, uh, uh, you begin looking at security cameras, uh, ring uh, the doorbells, uh, you know, the cameras on ring system, the, the system that cities and governmental entities set up. And so it, it, I've seen that over the course of a career uh, about the priorities and, and what can change. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, I'm still amazed at this point what people will put on social media. You know yeah. what they will share after they've done something that, thankfully, that that uh, we can see and gather and use that as intelligence and uh, and part of a case to to make a case against someone who's who's violating the law. But yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Technology has advanced us tremendously and continues to to do that day after day. Speaking of cases, you recently told lawmakers the GBI State Crime Lab has a backlog of about. 29 cases. And is that also because of the pandemic? And what was that number prior to the pandemic? Yeah, that's, that's actually 29,000 29, cases in the, in, the, in, the, in the crime lab. I, I will tell you that when I became director in February of 2019, uh, we, we had a backlog in the crime lab of, of around 44,000 cases. Uh, now, when I say backlog, that just means that those cases have been with us at least 30 days. Mm. Uh, and so we, we call it a backlog once it reaches the 31st day. And so one of my priorities on, on the forensic science side of, of the table, which is a major part of what we do at the GBI, was to attack that number. Uh, the reality is my vision for this agency is, is we can't become what we want to become and what I think we will become with those type of numbers. And so we began a process of really doing a deep dive in what we can do to make those numbers go down. We began really pushing uh, new ideas like outsourcing, uh, using private sector labs uh, to, to assist us in that regard. And we pushed those numbers down from 44 till around 22, 23,000, mm-hmm. uh, which was a sizable decrease. But, but as, as court systems began to function again, even even in, 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 uh, after taking a break with, with the majority of COVID situations in 2020, as 21 uh, happened, even though we were still battling the pandemic, court systems began operating. They, they began doing online cases. They began doing things of that nature. So our scientists 
ha had to go out and testify. And so they leave the lab, they go testify all over the state and that decreases their time to, to work on cases. And so the backlog crept up a little bit to the around the 29 or 30,000 number. But I will tell you that I feel uh, as, as many cases as, as, as those are, and there's certainly way too many. I will mm -hmm. tell you that I feel very confident we're headed in a good direction. I think the governor, the legislature has heard us. Uh, they'll be recommending in this budget cycle more scientists, more mm -hmm. techs, and, and, and I'm confident that we will get our hands around those numbers. And we need to because the court system depends on us doing that. In monitoring those budget hearings with agency leaders, and many talked about retention, many talked about being able to make sure they could also attract new personnel as well. You said that you, you felt pretty comfortable with where your, your numbers were in terms of personnel, um, although you did mention the situation in Macon, which we'll get to in a moment. But are you are you pretty happy with in terms of do you have enough personnel? Do you where do you need to get more folks in? Well, you know, as I explained to to, uh, you know, the folks, my friends at the Capitol, I, I'll, we, we always we always can use more scientists, but but the truth is, Rose, that we have to make an effort to keep the ones we have. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I give you an example Bal in in ballistics. Um, you know, well, let me go back. Our our backlog, sixty seven percent of our backlog is in one area. That's drug identification. It's just the sheer volume of drug cases that come into the lab day after day and i'm and i'm not using hyperbole it's day after day after day and that's something that that we realize here and so we have to to hire more chemists to to do those drug tests we also have are these smaller, drug tests excuse me uh, director Reynolds, no, are these drug tests of from blood samples or just in or is pills that are taken off the street and all of the above pills heroin methamphetamine cocaine. It's the literal drug, the physical drug that's seized from an individual or individuals during the course of an arrest. That's 60% of your backlogs? 67% of the backlog comes from that one discipline of chemistry, which is drug identification. A smaller percentage comes from uh, forensic biology, which is DNA. Mm -hmm. An even smaller percentage comes from ballistics, but ballistics covers cases that that are are so and every case is important but we're talking about murders mm -hmm. aggravated assaults where people are physically shot uh and so those ballistic scientists it takes us anywhere between 18 to 24 months to train a ballistic scientist in operating and functioning the way the gbi requires and when we do that we train them up we tell we, we get them qualified as experts around the state the federal system will come in literally within the snap of a finger, offer them more money of for course. less work, yeah. and they'll leave us. And so th that's the <sighs> retention factor where if we can get the, the, the requisite number of folks and keep them inside this building, then, then I'm confident we can do what we need to do. Is there a desire or practice already in the works then to work with some? We have some fine institutions here in Georgia. We know that. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything in the works to try to work with these institutions and, and create this pipeline where, you know, folks have internships, paid internships, and they can sort of work their way up through the ranks? That way you don't have to worry about the feds coming in and, and, and snatching them up. Yeah, we recruit at we recruit at, uh, we recruit at uh, 
uh, all the, uh, the HBCUs. We recruit at Mercer. We recruit at Emory. We recruit, we recruit all of those campuses. We send our folks out there at job fair times and make sure that they know what we're doing. We're also developing uh, a, a very close relationship with, with uh, for example, Mercer Medical School, with mm-hmm. Augusta Medical School, and so Emory as well to get our Get, and we'll we'll touch on that I'm sure before we 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 are finished today to mm-hmm. get our medical examiner doctors in here that that we need and so yes we we really believe in creating that relationship with those schools because we want Georgia folks to stay here. This is a great agency and and uh, and you know uh, one thing I have learned the last three years Rose is to stay out of their way and let them do their job and they and they do a good job but we need those good people, good young scientists, bright young Georgia minds to stay with us in here. We've talked about the gang task force. We've talked a lot about that the last time you were here, but I'm just, and I'll be honest, when you said the 67% of those in the crime, in the crime lab, the, the, the crime lab, the backlog was drugs related. What does that say to you then about, and I'm sure Georgia is not the only state that's grappling with this. Obviously, we know nationwide, but what does that say to you in terms of the the, the fight in trying to combat fentanyl and all these other uh, drugs out here on our, on our streets and in our neighborhoods? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's a never-ending battle. And, you know, we're, we've went through this metamorphosis, and we're probably still going through it in certain areas of the state. I went through it personally when I was DA of Cobb about the, making some decision inside a criminal justice system. How do we treat individuals who who have drug addiction issues? I will tell you, Rose, unequivocally, and and I'm 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 a pretty conservative guy, but I will tell you without any hesitation, you do not, you cannot, and we will not arrest our way out. Of, of drug epidemics. We won't. We can't do it. It's impossible. And so what we have to do in the system is we have to make some decisions about, you know, can we make sure that mandated treatment is part of people's sentencing scheme when they go through the, the system? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that I will tell you, that still won't affect what we do here because the system needs to know this powder that we took off of, 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 of defendant A, what is it? Is it illegal? Mm-hmm. Is it methamphetamine? Is it cocaine? Does it have fentanyl in it? So that still doesn't relieve the, the forensic science department, the crime lab division of the GBI from doing what it does. But I do believe that the system in and of itself with accountability courts, with drug courts are starting to, to turn that cycle back to a, to, uh, to a point where we're handling those cases in different ways. Again, that doesn't help us a whole lot here because we still have to test what comes mm-hmm. through the door. But, but, but I do believe that, that with, with, if we can get our hands around it, start cutting those numbers down, and we're, and we're headed in a good direction that hopefully the system will respond and begin treating those cases in a way where those individuals won't continuously habitually repeat themselves in drug cases. And it, a lot of folks have said the same thing that you said about in terms of making sure there's a resource and pathway for fo- pathways for folks who are, are, are suffering, who are in the substance abuse. But when we talk about the folks who are putting this stuff out in the communities, what's been the biggest challenge or barrier in trying to, to hone in on that? I don't know if it's a cartel, I don't know if it's gangs, you tell me. I think it's a little bit of, of, of both. I mean, drugs aren't exclusively uh, trafficked by cartels, even though they have a great 
uh, hand in doing that. They aren't exclusively sold and distributed by gang members, even though they have a hand in that. But there's a network. But there's a network somewhere. There's no no doubt. And, 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 you know, my point is, is this, is that the system, what we, what we have to do, Rose, and you've, you, and I think I've said this before, and I know you've heard it from people that I, I respect as, as a criminal justice system, particularly, and I'm a former prosecutor, but I think prosecutors and judges have to have to make sure that they can tell the difference between people that we're afraid of who are truly wreaking havoc, e- either through violence or selling drugs and people that we're just flat out pissed off at, you know, because sometimes you just get aggravated with people who habitually continuously have drug possession cases. But in reality, that's not necessarily somebody I'm afraid of. He or she may need help. Mm -hmm. And so I I think, I think what we do is when we focus and we figure out this is somebody that we do not want on the streets with the rest of us breathing the same air that you and I are breathing because he or she is dangerous, then the system's responsibility is to make sure that person, that's the individual that we're going after. We're going to use the resources we have. We're going to sentence that individual. We're going to indict that person. We're going to prosecute that person. And when a judge is given the responsibility of sentencing that person, he or she does it responsibly and does it accurately. So those individuals will be locked up and will be away. It's, and it's not, it's not a huge, it's not locking up every person that comes through the system. Mm-hmm. It, it truly is a smaller percentage of folks than we think. But those are the people that the, the, the system should be responsible for really laser focusing on and making sure they're away from the rest of us. The voice you hear is Vic Reynolds. He's the Georgia Bureau Investiga- Investigation Director. We're talking about his top priorities and outlook for 2022 and also just your, your regular ongoing duties. I think I asked you last time you were here, do folks really understand all that the GBI and a lot of states have them, The what you all do? And also one of those duties is investigating police-involved shootings, which automatically the GBI takes over that investigation, Correct. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, we, we probably do 99% of the officer-involved shootings in, in the state, Rose, but ironically, it's not statutory, it's not required. It's just evolved and morphed over the years that, that they call us in to do it, and, and I feel very confident in our ability to do those. We're trained, we make sure our agents know how to use them, how to investigate those cases. They're labor-intensive. Uh, we did 100 police-involved police shootings in uh, calendar year 21. We did another 24 use of forces, so 124 uh, use of force investigations with 100 shootings in, in Georgia. And, and those average, we, we average about 192 investigative hours per case on those on those uh, investigations. So it's, it's something that's really labor intensive, but it's something that, that I think the GBI needs to be doing. If it's not mandated by a Georgia statute, then is it that that county or city will ask you all to come in? And do the investigation. That, that, that's correct. You you got to remember, Rose. I know you know this, but your viewers, your listeners, it's it's really interesting. The GBI is what what what's what is called a requesting assisting agency. We just don't automatically come. You know, people tease me a lot of times, you know, what are, what are y'all doing? What's the GBI doing? Well, we haven't been asked to do anything sometimes. So to get us involved in a case, the majority of time we have to be requested. Mm-hmm. When there's a police police involved shooting what that agency usually does. And I think correctly is they say, we don't need to look, we don't need to investigate our own. We need to get another agency to do that. And again, that, that that's how the GBI steps in. 
for example, let's say the, the, the other couple of days ago, yesterday, shooting in Atlanta PD, where mm-hmm. the officer discharged his weapon. Then APD, you know, Chief Bryant and I are, 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 are close. He's a personal friend of mine. They will reach out to us and they'll say, Vic, can you guys help? Our, our regional office in Atlanta area will work that case. That's like we will. We had one this morning up in Habersham County. So mm-hmm. we're working that case. And, and so, yeah, that, that's how it happens. They ask us, the department can ask us, the, the DA can ask us, uh, the sheriff can ask us. So there's a number of ways to get us involved, but that's how we usually get in those investigations. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr will be a guest on this program uh, this Friday, I do believe. Is there, as it relates to Ahmaud Arbery and that, you all were involved in in that case, involved with the McMichaels and and, and William Bryan as well. And I think I remember early on in a hearing, one of your investigators testified um, about alleged remarks that were made by, by, I believe, Travis McMichael. Director Reynolds, in a case like that, high-profile international case like that and you and I both know all the optics around that as it relates to to race um, what have you this is your personal lens what have you learned about how all of this could possibly pans out in terms of the GBI being involved this whole issue of again again a person of color being shot and killed whether it's by a law enforcement or a, a citizen and race being involved in all of this I don't think I, you and I have really ever had that conversation. You know, that's that's a really interesting question. I, I will tell you that in that particular case, um, uh, the the truth is, Rose, and and um, the, the, and, and it's uh, I would say it's difficult for me to say it, but it really isn't. The truth is, GBI should have been called into that case from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it sat for some two and a half months before we were called in. And I, and I, and I literally remember where I was physically when the governor and I spoke about the case, the governor called me. He said, Vic, have you seen this video? It was on a Tuesday evening video had just, just come out publicly. And I said, yes, sir, I've seen it. And he said, have you all been asked to do anything? And I said, we have not. And he said, you know, call down there and tell them that any resources you have, you will make available. And I said, yes, sir. Uh, I, I was on Roswell Street in Marietta, across mm-hmm. from Roswell Street Baptist Church. I remember, pulled over into a parking lot, reached out to to the district attorney that evening, and I said, you know, I want you to know that any resources we have, all you got to do is ask, and, and I'll, 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 we'll drop what we're doing, and we'll work that case. Uh, and that was about 6, 6.15 in the evening, 9.30 that evening. On a Tuesday, I received a call from the district attorney. He said, uh, we, we need you. We want you in it. Uh, I worked, we worked the rest of that night till about midnight, putting mm-hmm. a team together. They hit the road the next morning and I had the case by 10 o'clock, the investigative file by six that evening, that evening, they called me and said, director, there's probable cause to make two arrests in this case. And I said, well, then make them, make them. And so we secured the warrants, arrested, uh, the McMichaels that evening, uh, continued the investigation for about two weeks before we charged Mr. Bryan. So. The, the, uh, uh, what, what I've learned in, in this case is, and what I hope the Bureau stands for, if it doesn't stand for anything else, what I hope the GBI stands for is, is that sometimes you may agree, sometimes you may disagree with what we do, what our decisions are, but I just want us to be, be always viewed as a non-political agency that has no 
skin in the game uh, about do you politics, feel, race, anything of that nature, and we come in and we do what is right. I hear where you're going. Do you feel like sometimes you all are thrust into that, into the politics of this? I, I think we've done a really good job at, at staying away from it, and that's that's why I've always encouraged my friends in the legislature to be really careful and and, and make sure that the GBI isn't painted in a position or put in a position where it looks like you know, we, we would respond, you know, for example, you know, the, the, the truth is the director, the director's position is political because I'm appointed, uh, the governor asked, mm-hmm. the dire- asked me to be director. But I will tell you, and I'm, I'm not here, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't politic. What I do in, in the voting box is my business, not anybody else's. And so, but I will tell you in this job, I've never had anyone, Governor Down, say anything to me except do the right thing. And that's the way I always want this agency to be. And, and I think that's why we have to be very vigilant when we work day in and day out over the Capitol and with our legislative friends to make sure that nothing happens to ever put us, this agency, in a position where we do anything or look. The perception is, is it can't be political. It has to be apolitical, neutral, fair, and willing to do the right thing. You know, we'll, I, as I told some legislators the other day, these guys, these agents would lock me up if I mm-hmm. violate the law. And that's exactly what they And they should. they should. They should knock on your door and say, Director Reynolds, you have the right to. I'm just kidding. Absolutely. But I promise you, my hand to the Lord, I'm not going to do that. Bro. I'm not going to violate the law. So, so maybe they won't ever have to do that. Finally, as we wrap up, uh, as we go back to those budget hearings, and even in his state of the state address, Governor Kemp pledged more resources for your agency. You happy with that? Anything that you're not getting that you think you should get? No, they've been so so good to us, Rose. The governor has the the, the speaker, and I've have talked many times, senators, and and you know we feel very confident that this session is going to be productive for the bureau. I think we're going to get what what we need, and uh, and and I feel very good. This is going to be a very productive session for the GBI. Georgia Bureau of Investigation Director Vic Reynolds. We've been talking about his top priorities for 2022. Director Reynolds, as always, thank you for taking the time. You always take time for the program. A lot of our questions come from listeners, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you, Rose. Take care. Bye-bye. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A new podcast, Verified the Next Threat examines and uncovers what is cited as, quote, an international network of global extremists who are recruiting for a new transnational holy war, holy war and white power, close quote. It also examines how the U.S. and other countries are responding. Racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists are metastasizing around the world, and we are definitely seeing an absolute uptick on that. White people will be on the road to, like, literal extinction over my dead body. Extremists are learning from each other and recruiting every day for their global fight for white power. We are currently in the process of gathering like-minded people throughout the world. We're pretty flat-footed. We have no handle on how big these groups are. That's, um an iron cross with my wife's name in it. To those guys who recognized us as terrorists, our ideas are what makes us dangerous. 
Now, Mark Greenblatt co-reported the podcast with journalist Natasha Del Toro. He's a senior national investigative journalist who reports for Atlanta-based Newsy. And one of the experts he turned to in that reporting was Heidi Byrick. She's chief strategy officer with the nonprofit Global Project Against Hate and Extremism based here in Georgia. Both join me now. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. So good to be with you, Rose. Yeah, great to be here. Heidi, have you been on this program before? I feel like we've talked before. I have. I was on uh, maybe two years ago when I was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center talking about hate groups and extremists. Absolutely. Now, I may not remember when you were on, but I remember who was on. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my hometown show, so this is a thrill. Absolutely. You know, I think origin stories are always fascinating. So why don't we begin there? How did each of you come to work on this? And, and Mark, I'll start with you. So I, I started working on Verified the Next Threat uh, really on January 7th, the day after the insurrection. Uh, I'm sort of a veteran investigative reporter and showed up in our Washington Bureau's investigative team meeting. And I said, hey, guys, I don't think we know the first thing about really what is going on in the world of, of, of white supremacy. There, there were um, people that had showed up at the Capitol that day that were wearing Camp Auschwitz uh, shirts. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, uh, and we go into this very transparently in the podcast, I experienced seeing things like that in particular, uh, not just as a reporter, but also uh, for myself as the son of a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. So it, it really hit me uh, differently. And, and I had seen, um, I'd seen these people walking around inside the Capitol, decided that I didn't know enough about white support supremacy in the world today. I want to know how they got there and I want to know who else they might be connected to uh, if this was sort of a, a you know, a, a few people who just, uh, you know, ended up down there, the true hard, hardcore uh, neo-Nazi types or, or if they were connected to something bigger. And I went mm -hmm. around and I checked my Rolodex and one of the first people that I called was was uh, Dr. Byrick here uh, mm -hmm. to, to ask her, what do you think is going on in, in, in the modern day trends in this world? And, and it really set me off. The answer set me off on a year long journey. So the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, you've seen how that's playing out. Heidi, I want to come to you then as you're watching what's taking place January 6th. What's going through your mind? Well, I mean, I almost hate to say it, but I wasn't surprised in the least. I'd been watching, you know, the number of white supremacist groups and neo-Nazis and other extremists grow. You know, I had seen the horrors of Charlottesville, where a lot of these groups came together back in 2017. And in the months leading up to the election in November 2020, the extremism online was so violent and and you could just literally for people like me who spend all their time watching these people online, you could feel a storm coming. I didn't know exactly what it would be, but I knew something was going to happen and it was going to be something terrible. The podcast uses January 6th as a starting point to investigate how extremists are working together around the world. And someone out there may be listening, saying, well, Heidi and Mark, is it fair to assume that all the individuals who were involved in January 6th were should we consider white supremacists or the extremists or some just caught up as Trump supporters or some folks who just went along for the ride or all of the above? Very important that the podcast begins by being inspired by wanting to learn more 
because of the events of January 6th. But we spend six episodes largely away from January 6th uh, because there were a lot of people that showed up that were, were there for political reasons or many other reasons that had nothing to do with white supremacy. So important to say that. What we end up doing in the podcast that is unique once we were on that journey to simply learn is we ended up stumbling into the middle of a global network uh, of literally terrorists hardcore white supremacists uh, and others. And, and we sort of get some first of a kind, um, real modern day exposure to uh, even a designated terrorist in Russia mm -hmm. who uh, has white supremacy leanings and who is seeking to, uh, Rose, uh, to, to unite the world's white, white supremacists. And we're, we're going to play a clip from that in a moment. But Heidi, I want to bring you in on that because this international movement, this is not lost on you and in the work that you've done in the past. No, you cannot look at white supremacy in particular anymore through a domestic frame. These are groups that have presence in multiple countries, leadership across lines, social media allows that, and even have a presence in places like here in Georgia. There was arrest of members of a group called The Base who were neo-Nazis for an attempted murder. So mm -hmm. you get this feeling of the incredible reach of these movements. Well, let's talk about this reach because the Russian imperialist movement, this is a white supremacist group based in Russia, as you all say, with a network all over the world, and it also runs training camps for extremists. I want to play a clip for our listeners and for you all to comment on. How much would it cost me to go through your training today? How much would it, if I wanted to come through it, what would it cost me? Our prices are not high. In the United States, they could be higher, $1,000 or a few thousand dollars. In our case, it is $500. It's enough for training. For a week of training, $500. What would I learn if I came? You will learn how to shoot using a firearm. You will go to the shooting range to undergo firearm training. Medical training is also part of the course as well as tactical training, but meals, lodging and ammunition is separate. People of any persuasion could take part in it and there's just one requirement. You need to be mentally normal. Huh. Mark, let's back up for our listeners here. First of all, how did you even, how did y'all get connected with, is his name Stanislav? Barobiev. Yeah. I'm glad <laughs> it's you said last it. name. <laughs> You know, um, the way we, 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 we got to him was that uh, right now in America, uh, there is only one organization that the United States State Department uh, says has both white supremacist leanings and that they've used their big stick on uh, and, and have actually designated the organization as a, as, as, as a terror organization, which allows them to do things like take away their money if they have any assets here in the U.S., or, or it allows the CIA to actually kick into high gear when it comes to really monitoring uh, these types of organizations. There's only one of these groups uh, that, that has far right or white supremacist leanings, and it's the Russian imperial movement. So, you know, on a, on a whim one Saturday night, uh, you know, uh, we decided that if we were going to do a podcast on white uh, supremacy and the global connections that were taking place, we should try to talk to the people who are in the middle of it and, and, and just simply tracked him down in Russia, uh, fired off an email uh, that I didn't know if it would work or not. And a week or so later, uh, received an email back uh, sort of saying, I'm, I'm willing to talk. You sent an email. Then you got a response. Heidi, is it that simple for folks if they want to be, get involved with this stuff? 
sadly, I have to say that a lot of these groups are very public. They're recruiting on mainstream uh, platforms and other places. Yeah, you can. Now, talking to a reporter is a different matter. I think that that was surprising. Um, but yes, unfortunately, that's what's going on. Mark, what else stood out for you all with that interview? Uh, just how open, I guess transparent is the best word to use here, that he was. Well, you know, um, he shared with us, as you played the clip there, that he's openly continuing to train people. And this is somebody who is a, a veteran of uh, the Russian military, and he's surrounded by others who have military training as well. Uh, these are these are people who have skill sets and they're inviting people to come in. So this isn't just someone in a chat room sort of spreading spreading ideas, but this is actually a guy who um, is quite religious and would like to see uh, a society uh, in Russia that allows white Christian men mostly to, to, to rule. And he would like to see the white nationalists of the world be allowed to have their uh, societies rise as well. Heidi, the role of the internet here, big, obviously, is through your, your expertise, and Mark, you can jump in on this too, the authorities... Are they not able then to, to track this easily or what's been the, the issue here? Because if it was so easy, as just sending an email and they're very open about how to reach them and very open about what they want to do. Have the authorities, are there some challenges here for them? Or can you just not, you can only monitor someone based on what they say and you have to wait till actions come afterwards? Well, I would say there's two things going on. Your latter point is is important. You don't want to violate civil liberties. But the bigger problem has been that the U.S. government, through multiple administrations, until this one, has ignored these movements. They've thought of terrorism as largely an Islamic extremist issue, obviously because of 9-11. And all the while, through the years, white supremacy was metastasizing and growing and resources weren't there to track and take these uh, folks as seriously as we take other kinds of terrorists. And we sort of lost the lessons of Timothy McVeigh, right? A person inspired by mm -hmm. white supremacy and militia movements and a de terrible, devastating domestic terrorist attack after 9-11. And so the issue has been about resources and commitment and the Biden administration has a new strategy to do that. But it's just unfortunate that for decades, literally, we ignored this stuff and hence we have the problem on our hands. And it's not just the American government. Many other European countries, for example, did the same thing, made the same mistake. The voice here is Heidi Byrick, chief strategy officer with the nonprofit Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Extremism. And I'm also in conversation with Mark Greenblatt. He's a senior national investigative reporter with Newsing. We're talking about the new podcast they've been involved in. It's called Verified the Next Threat, which looks at global connections among racially motivated violent extremists. You all also had an opportunity to speak with some high level uh, folks within Washington, correct? Yeah, you know, we uh, were able to, after doing a bit of reporting on this area, uh, gain credibility and access to some of the senior counterterrorism officials at the United States State Department. Uh, and um, this is sort of a, a first of its kind interview, the first uh, interview they've ever given to a podcast and one of the first on camera recorded interviews uh, that they've given in years there. And, and what we did was we asked them why were there not why are there not more uh, entities that are that are designated there's a really great dialogue that we go into uh, in 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 the podcast uh, about this issue and 
you know, um, what it comes down to really, Rose, is that they, they tell us very openly and candidly that even they themselves at the federal at the federal level are still in what they call a nascent stage of learning about all the connections. While they do say it's very concerning to them, uh, these are real and the kinds of things that we investigate and bring to light in the podcast are very real and of concern, but they sort of just openly say, we don't know what we need to know about this. Uh, and at one point in a really stark uh, acknowledgement, one of the officials says um, uh, that they don't have the information, the resources or the staff uh, that they need. And so this really is a big deal. Uh, and we really hope people pay attention in this podcast. Well, but how do you mention Timothy McVeigh? And that's from the Oklahoma bombings, correct? So it's mm-hmm. not like this is something that popped up January 6th. This has been an ongoing issue in this nation. How do you what do you make of that? What they what they told you all from the State Department? Well, I think what Mark and his team, this particular interview is absolutely critical because it shows this decades long failure to take these threats, meaning white supremacy, anti-government militias here in our backyards as seriously as other kinds of terrorism. And it's, you know, it's striking to me to hear Department of State employees admitting we don't know much, we don't have the resources. And if we don't fix this, we need to remember the kinds of attacks committed by white supremacists, the El Paso Walmart attack, the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and international ones like the Christchurch mosque shooting, synagogues in Germany. These are all motivated by the ideology that Mark and his team are investigated here and these global networks. So we can't have a situation where we don't have appropriate resources to deal with this threat. It's just, it's unacceptable. It puts people at risk. Mark, what do you want to add to that? I just want to add that, you know, what we are looking into, it may start uh, in Washington, it may expand to Russia, but this impacts people in Atlanta, this impacts people across Georgia, it impacts people across the country, because the conspiracy theories that you'll hear if you listen to Verified, um, that you'll hear espoused directly out of the mouths of these people, you'll hear uh, that they're the, the same conspiracy theories that end up spread online and they end up in the hands of a gunman who, uh, you know, whether they're in El Paso, Texas, whether they're in Pittsburgh or elsewhere, these are the same conspiracy theories being spread. So it's, 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 it's so important people understand what is spreading and that they engage with it. Any idea in terms of, and I think I've asked this question before, Heidi, to folks like you, in terms of numbers? I mean, often we get, every year we get the annual hate report, which breaks it down by state and then lists through their lens folks that they, and organizations they've put on this list. Any idea in terms of, is it more concentrated? Are these groups more concentrated in a certain region of, of the nation? Or is this just spread out throughout the entire U.S.? Well, we don't know exact numbers, but yes, there there are extremist groups in every state in the United States, you know, over time, there's no question. There are these kinds of white supremacist groups in every major European nation, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, also in places you might not expect in Latin America and other areas. This stuff is everywhere. And let me just give you a sense of what the numbers might be. The Proud Boys, one channel on Telegram, they have multiple, has 40,000 members. You multiply that across all the multiple groups, all the stuff I'm talking about. And we're talking about a substantial number of people who subscribe to these ideas worldwide in the millions. This is an important election year, as you both know. I don't want to give away too much in the podcast, but how is there any content that deals with how some of these groups try to infiltrate or or appear to give the perception that they have certain elected officials on their side or or somehow they're, they're working through the lens of said elected official. 
We're not going into any of that. In fact, the podcast itself is very apolitical. Uh, no matter which side of the aisle you you you, you land on, uh, you know this this is a, this is a podcast that attempts to simply deliver the the truth. You're not going to hear a lot of right or left leaning stuff. You just you're just going to hear hear the words of the people who are organizing. You're going to hear you're going to hear from people who are trying to fight back. And you're going to we're trying to do this in a way that people can actually uh, consume the information. Um, you know, uh, in, in in a listenable way. And finally, Mark, was there anything that you all wanted to get that you couldn't get in thus far? Well, um, you know, I think for me, the answer is where does this story go from here? And and when people hear what members of Congress on the House Intelligence Committee tell us, when they hear what the State Department itself says about the the, the realness of this threat, uh, you know, I think this is simply an important podcast for people to listen to. You can you can you can hear it um, um, anywhere you get your podcasts, and 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 I think it should it should hopefully light a fire and hopefully the beginning of a new discussion on the importance of of this issue. Well, Heidi, I'll give the last word in terms of Mark saying is a new discussion, but you, you can't overlook that this is a, a major election year here in the United States and that some of these groups may try in, in some fashion or form to somehow make it all about politics to recruit more people. They could. And we should remember, sadly, that elections are flashpoints often for violence. The tree of life shooting in Pittsburgh happened around the 2018 midterms and DHS mm-hmm. just this morning warned about violence coming up with the election. Hmm. Hadi Bayrick is Chief Strategy Officer with the nonprofit Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. She was a source for the new podcast, Verified the Next Threat. Mark Greenblatt is a senior national investigative correspondent who reports for Atlanta-based Newsy and also reported for the podcast. Thank you both for taking the time. Chilling information, but information nevertheless that I think our listeners greatly appreciate it. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks so much, Rose. Thanks, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Daniel was our engineer for today. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of this broadcast, it is online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you know, we've got a podcast too. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.